0: So I'm trying to catch up a little bit with something I was talking about for quite a while and then we've, got, we've added in some different topics the last number of weeks, including me not being here, which is helpful to discontinue a theme, um, which is we've been talking about the four foundations of mindfulness for a number of months. And, um going into a little bit of detail, not a lot, but a little bit of detail about the four foundations of mindfulness and then focusing on each of the foundations. The first foundation being mindfulness of the body, the second foundation being mindfulness of Vedna. And I like to use the Pali word because the general translation is feeling, but it's not feeling in terms of emotion. It's the feeling tone of experience, vagna, the feeling tone of of an experience. And it's what I described in the instructions. It's either that an experience uh, can be either pleasant, can be unpleasant, or it can be neither pleasant nor unpleasant, or in between pleasant or unpleasant. And so that's the second foundation of mindfulness. The third foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of mind. And mindfulness of mind really means mindfulness of mind and heart. That that would probably be a better translation of it for us. It's mindfulness of both uh, the um, cognitive states of mind that arise and the states of heart that come. So the emotions are really in the third foundation of mindfulness. And so tonight, and, and I... Talked a, I believe I talked a little bit about the fourth foundation of mindfulness. Can anybody confirm that? I did? I did. Okay, I'm going to talk a little more about the fourth foundation. If I repeat myself, it's because it's been too long. I can't remember what I said or I didn't say. And the fourth foundation of mindfulness is um, uh, mindfulness of dharmas. And it's mostly often translated as mindfulness of mental objects. Totally a bad translation again. But um, what what you get when you read the sutta, when you actually look at the sutta, and you read the fourth foundation, you get all of a sudden you get a number of lists to start being aware of as you're mindful. So the first three foundations are very simple. Right? Like what's be mindful of what's here in the body. Be <coughs> mindful of the sensations of the body. Be mindful of the breath of the body. Be mindful of the second foundation is pleasant or unpleasantness of a moment of experience. Or third foundation, be mindfulness of the mind or thought or emotion or the atmosphere of mind. Very simple, it's all about being here. What's happening here? It's not very cognizant, really meaning it's not like you have to think about this a lot or learn a lot in order to be mindful. The fourth foundation means, oh, you're going to learn something and then begin to bring that into the process of mindfulness. Okay? Everybody got that? You're going to learn something tonight. (laughs) You know, a certain kind of learning, more cognitive learning. So, So then the Buddha lists these different, schemes or, or patterns of experience that he says, oh, be mindful of these patterns. Be mindful of these patterns. And the first pattern he talks about is called the hindrances or the obstacles or the difficulties that arise quite naturally in mindfulness practice. And so you start to be mindful of the five hindrances, desire, aversion, uh, uh, sleepiness, restlessness, doubt. Anybody ever notice any of those? <laughs> okay, and Really common, normal stuff, but it starts to be outlined in a new way now. It's not just that it's a mental state, a release of the hindrances you want to pay attention to them when they arise and start to know them oh this is a difficulty I really want to stay awake for this and you're not just trying to get rid of it you're not just trying to get rid of the hindrances I'll go into this more when we go into the hindrances so there's the hindrances five hindrances then the five aggregates form, feeling, perception mental formations consciousness right? The Buddha is starting to break down reality in a different way and say, oh, pay attention to it like this for a while. Instead of the usual way, <coughs> we pay attention to reality. Instead of the usual way we categorize things, oh, this is my feeling, and I'm this, and I'm that, or I'm, I like this, or I don't like this. Those are all good to be aware of, but start to pay attention to the more fundamental categories of the experience, and then see what happens as you start to be mindful. Form, which is really another way to say body feeling, is vedana again. Formations, you know, what conscious, what, what means happens in the mind, uh, mental formations, the kind of thoughts that happen, and then consciousness itself. Okay, so so five hindrances, five aggregates. And here's a little subtitle, often called the five clinging aggregates. Okay? And then the six sense spheres. Everybody know what the six sense spheres are? Right? It's the sense doors that we all know. Start to pay attention to reality by being mindful of the sense doors. And the six sense doors are the, the eye and C, like even now be mindful that you're seeing don't just get, get enraptured i mean you might get enraptured. rapture <laughs> you know, enough people have been disappointed doing that <laughs> I, mean, I won't tell you too much about that <laughs> but, um, but um so so the sight sound smell taste touch And then whatever happens in heart-mind, the heart-mind is also a sense door. And so these sense doors, they make up our world. And we're enchanted by them or enraptured by them or often intoxicated by them. We think, but we don't even pay attention to the, oh, they're just six sense doors that are happening all the time. And what happens when we start to be mindful of the more fundamental components of lived reality, right? And now you're getting a little bit of how I interpret the, the fourth foundation. And so um, the the um, uh, five hindrances, the five aggregates, the six sense doors, and then, and, and these... Um, one of the fellows who writes about the four foundations, he said, oh, one leads to the next. Actually, you, you, you work with the five hindrances in order to, well, I'll go, I'll come back to that in a second. I'll come back in a second. Okay, so five hindrances, five aggregates, six sense doors, the seven awakening factors, or the seven awakening factors, those are important to start to pay attention to when your meditation has reached that degree of experience, which mostly it's not happening. You know, Hopefully we're, we're happy if there's some mindfulness here. And that's one of the, the factors of, of the awakening factors. Remember, seven awakening factors. I'll just say them quickly. Mindfulness, investigation, energy rapture tranquility concentration equanimity those are five components of experience when they're here and when they're stable they lead to awakening so we want to learn to recognize them very different than the five hindrances the seven awakening factors and it's a it's beautiful when the mind goes into that state and those factors are present. There's something they often talk about in many spiritual traditions, but in Buddhism, as luminous mind, a bright mind, an awake mind. And that mind leads to awakening. And so the fourth foundation is to start to be aware of these different realms or different ways to perceive human experience and then see what happens as we start to develop some skill at that perception, at that mindfulness. And then after that, the the last one that's listed are the four foundations of mindfulness. So one's mindful of suffering, the cause of suffering, the cessation of suffering, and the skillful means that leads to freedom. So that's the fourth foundation. Put very simply, um, here's what somebody wrote about about it. Um, And let's see if this is helpful or not. The classification, classificatory schemes, uh, the classificatory (laughs) schemes, not the objects of meditation. But constituent frameworks or points of reference to be applied during contemplation. <laughs> is that helpful? <laughs> In other words, it schemes, it makes, it makes a schemata or schemes, not just what you pay attention to, which is a sound, a smell, a taste, a touch, but uh, uh, frameworks or points of reference to be applied during your meditation. See what I mean? It's a little different than just you're paying attention to a sound, or a smell, or a taste, or a touch, or a feeling, or a thought, and, and the knowing of it. You're actually using a schemata or a scheme to begin to see the patterns of how reality has, uh, works and from a Buddhist perspective. And then what happens is you start to use that as a lens of perception. Um. Contemplation of dharmas is particularly concerned with recognition of the conditioned nature of phenomena that we contemplate. So this is an important point. We're starting to pay attention to fundamentals we take for granted. We never think about Like, it's like a fish swimming in water, right? Fish not thinking about the water. Or it's about us walking through, we never think about the air unless there's a problem, right, with the air. But in fact, the air is happening all the time. Or right now, how about space? We don't pay attention to space, but if I ask you now to see the space that's here, right? There's space, and space is part of the definition of everything that's here, but we don't pay attention. It's so obvious, so part of reality. We don't pay attention to it. What happens if for a day you go around and you just be mindful of the space where you are, both the space physically but then the space in your mind, or the lack of space in your mind, or the space in a relationship, or the lack of space in a relationship, or the space you know at the ball game um, when the Giants uh, are in last place, or the space at the ball game during the World Series, right? So what I'm saying is something happens when we start to pay attention to the fundamentals of reality which is not something we mostly do. And part of Buddhist practice is to pay attention to that. And, yeah, so it's we start to learn and apply the learning. And the simplest one is the five hindrances, because everybody suffers from the five hindrances. Or, or a better way to say it is the five hindrances are a natural part of human life learning how to be mindful of them is one of the um, uh, Dharma gates to liberation. And it's not that they're a bad thing and, oh, you have to get rid of them, you can never have desire, right? Which is the first thing people want to know when we say desire is one of the hindrances. Oh, wait, I really like certain stuff. Oh, I want somebody or something or this or that. You mean I can't want anything anymore? No, you can't want anything. (laughs) Good luck. (laughs) No, but we start to pay attention to it instead of simply being intoxicated by it. And that's a different perspective. It means, yeah, we can want freedom. We can want love. We can want chocolate loose we can want whatever we want you know, a lot of money we can want, but if we're not seeing the wanting then we start to be enslaved by the wanting we start to be enraptured or intoxicated by the wanting and we don't see that we're doing this we're grasping onto the wanting, we're holding onto the wanting and it's fine to want. There are a lot of wonderful, beautiful things to want in this world. You know, people and relationships and work and things you know, whatever they might be. I love this bill bell we have. And for years I have to get a decent bell for this. And we always had these little bells that fell off and I was like, what like the <laughs> you know, can we give finally Finally I wanted the bill enough. I spent my own money and bought a bell, you know. And it was great, it was liberating. <laughs> right? It liberated me from a bunch of money and that kind of thing. But but if the bell wasn't here, because it won't be someday, believe me, yeah, yeah. things happen, the bell breaks or dies or it gets stolen or whatever happens to the Bill. So then we'd have another bell. Or if there was no bell, here's what you would here's what you would probably hear. Shut your eyes. Pretend you're meditating, <laughs> just for a moment. You would hear this. Ding. <laughs> it's true. You would, it's, that's what I do at home when I'm on people. You know, I don't, I don't have a bell by the chair. You know, I just sing the bell. It's just, you know.
1: But, but what I'm
0: pointing at is we don't pay attention to the wanting itself. We just, when we really feel strong wanting, we people will do anything for what they want. I mean, that's the worst shit in the world happens because somebody wants something. They want a place, or they want gold, or they want riches, or they want property, or they want people, or they want, I mean... You know, I mean, think about how the bad things in the world happen, you know. How how does war happen? How does enslavement happen? How does killing happen? Right? And really, it's a combination of the first two hindrances. People either want something or they don't want something. And they'll do anything to make that reality happen. They're not paying attention to what's happening right here which is the wanting or the aversion. The wanting or the not wanting. And I'm just a little bit, again, these are part of the hindrances. But they, they get acted out. They don't just happen on the cushion. Anyhow, so I'm gonna, I'll say a little more about that, but I want to finish saying a little more about the fourth foundation in general. So there's these lists. And the lists are good to learn. You don't need to learn them all tonight. You don't have to learn them all and study them all. You could if you want to. I mean, if you're inspired, great. But it took me years to learn the list. But the first one I learned was the five hindrances. And really, probably the second one I really learned, let me just think, five aggregates. I kind of knew what it was. The six sense doors, I definitely knew what that was and applied that from day one in my meditation practice and then the seven factors of enlightenment those all became important lists for me and you can see which ones become important for you they don't all have to be important it's just good to know them so you can start to apply them as needed or if necessary and see what happens as they're applied as they're used as they're integrated or metabolized a little even a little bit and so your meditation is I mean, you know first part of meditation is just to learn how to pay attention and be mindful of what's here but it's not the end of the story meditation as taught by the Buddha was, you know, relaxation good, you know being calmer, good you know, feeling better, that's all good not the end of the story not the end of human potential not the end of your potential. So the Buddha was pointing at the maturation of human potential. And the maturation of human potential had to do with freedom, had to do with liberation, had to do with release. So the the four foundation, the fourth foundation means okay, we need to learn something, we need to learn how to apply it through mindfulness to recognize what's pointed out in whatever list you might be interested in or working with and see, okay, how does that work? When does that come? How does that show up here? Right? That's why the five hindrances are so good, it's such a good place to start, because, let's put it this way, anybody think they don't have any of the five hindrances? Let me just see, you know, sometimes maybe somebody doesn't, but I haven't met anybody yet who doesn't. Form, feel, form, uh, excuse me, um, desire, aversion, restlessness, sleepiness, doubt. And really to be applied as we're paying attention, moment by moment by moment, noticing when the desire comes when it's strong, the wanting, the ideas, the thinking about, the planning, the imagining it, getting it, how I'm going to get it, or the not wanting, the aversion, the pushing away, the denial, the trying to get rid of, the figuring out what to do about the person next to me who's breathing too loud, you know, that if I could get rid of them, I'd have a good meditation, you know, but we're not watching what's happening here which is aversion, you know, or, or sleepiness. I mean, anybody here not been sleepy when they're meditating? That's pretty common. How do you work with it? And the fact that it can be worked with and worked with skillfully, not as, oh, it's not a bad thing or not a problem, but, but we, we want to pay attention to it. We want to respond to it. This is where people sometimes make a mistake. They think uh, meditation is a passive activity. Right? Oh, yeah, you just sit down you don't do anything. Uh, I haven't seen that at all. You know, maybe after you're enlightened, you don't do anything, but I haven't seen that personally. And, you know, it means... what what it means is meditation is we're learning how to use the heart and mind in a way different than we've been trained we start to learn how to use the heart and mind to pay attention to reality and to be mindful or heartful of reality and to wake up we're not doing it to get better grades or to make more money, or to be more impressive to, you know, some other person, or for any other reason. We're doing it to wake up and to see what what does it mean, what is it to be a human being? What is it to be living consciousness in human form? And what's the possibility of this human consciousness? What's the potential? What did the Buddha discover? Because that's what we're aiming at. I mean, the, the Buddha, you know, it's, it's all good. All Anything is good. Calm, relaxation, joy, happiness, all that's good. It's just not the end of the story. There's more that's possible. And that's what the Buddha was pointing at. So the fourth foundation, which is to recognize what's pointed out at the list in the list, which is the aliveness that's here, even in the five hindrances, in the five aggregates, in the seven factors of awakening, in the in the six sense doors. These are not just conceptual realities that we're talking about they're living realities and we want to start to pay attention to the liveness of desire, of aversion, of sleepiness, of restlessness, of death. Restlessness, what a great thing to learn how to pay attention to. Anybody here ever get restless (laughs) in a meditation or aversive? You ever have that feeling, when the hell is Eugene going to ring the bell? (laughs) Right? That's great. You have a beautiful opportunity to pay attention to something that could wake you up. That could lead to freedom. That's called aversion. That's called irritation. That's called, I don't want that anymore. I don't like that. Ring that goddamn bell. and right. <laughs> that you pay attention because it's it's energetic. It's alive. It's got its cognitive part and it's affective or emotional part and it's got it's energetic part and then to see what happens as we bring that as we're mindful of that as we bring that into this uh, uh, awareness that's knowing things as they are it's not trying to fix things it's not trying to change things it's not trying to make you a better person That's, that's fine, that's a good part of Buddhism wrong, but in that moment we're simply trying to learn how to really be present to the life that's sitting here and that life is going to emerge in all kinds of different ways some of which we like some of which we don't like some of which we don't care about I could say that a little different They're going to, it's going to emerge in all kinds of different ways pleasant unpleasant or neutral ways And there's something about learning how to be mindful, heartful, pay attention in this way that the Buddha said leads to freedom. And as an idea, well, maybe that sounds right, but it's only in in, in the experience that you discover whether he was, was he bullshitting us or was it true what he said? And it's really, that's really the best way to learn, learn. Don't even know if it's true, but let's see and then give yourself to it and see what happens for five or 10 years or however long it takes you to figure it out. So so what's pointing at the, uh, uh, a living reality that we want to pay attention to. And so we start to look look more closely and what makes up experience and what makes up the experience we identify with and what makes up the experience we get attached to and we think has to be here. That's, that's a helpful way to think about this. And partly I'm saying this, somebody was asking me about um, uh, the teachings of not self and wanted to hear a little more about it. And uh, two things I want to say really quickly about that, which is that Buddha didn't say there's no self. He talked about not-self. He talked about there's self and there's not-self. And self is a <coughs> conventional understanding of what's here. And not-self may be a more... Transcendent understanding of what's here, and so and so you don't have to get rid of the self, but start to be mindful of how does that phenomena get created by what we identify with, and you don't have to stop. You do know, You can still identify, but start to pay attention to it as identification, because if you'll notice. Your identifications often change, right? Like, I used to be a musician, serious musician. I used to practice eight hours a day. I loved music. My whole identity for a while was around music for a while, meaning many years. But truth is, I'm not a musician anymore. I don't, I don't play music anymore. And I don't even care that I'm not a musician anymore. I'm happy I was a musician. That happened. But that's not my identity. And, you know, I'm a meditation teacher now. But after my accident, I wasn't a meditation teacher. Right? I was, you know, for a little while, I was not clear if I was going to live or die. And then it was like... And even still, I didn't care. Even when I was going to live, I didn't care about being a meditation teacher. I was more interested in, like, oh, well, I didn't even know what it was to be alive, almost. And so it was wild to watch that identity get really unplugged very quickly through the accident that I had. For those who don't know, about a year and a few months ago, I had a a serious accident, bike accident. But it was, it was, um, it was. Um, Awakening in certain ways, and we will all have these kind of experiences. That our identity, however it's been created, whatever it is, whatever, it's only temporary. That's that's the one thing I'll I'll stand by the whole, you know, for a few years. What I just said, right? Our identity is only temporary. It's not permanent, and that's threatening to our identity itself. Right? Identity likes to think it's permanent. But if you look, if you start to watch, if you pay attention, if you become mindful, these different foundations of mindfulness, you can start to notice that the whole creation is happening moment by moment by moment by moment. That there's a moment of sensation, of sound, of smell, of taste, of touch, and then the thought, a feeling, and then the identification or the attachment with those experiences, that they're mine. And that's, that's totally normal, not a bad thing. <laughs> it's just that to, to define that in concrete, May be a limited understanding of the reality that's sitting in your seat. That this, the reality that's sitting in your seat, may be bigger or more than something that's simply defined by the various experiences that are happening, or by the identification with them. (coughs) So, the fourth foundation starts to take us into the fundamentals that make up human experience. We're really all four foundations do this, but the fourth foundation, even in more detail, a certain way, um, into a kind of, and and I don't know how to say this in a skillful way, but I'll say it (coughs) unskillfully, because it's a depersonalization of reality, of experience. But it's not, here's the tricky part, it's not a dissociation <coughs> from experience, or a denial of experience, or a suppression of experience, but it's not the usual identification that reifies the traditional sense of self. It's starting to see, oh, it's all just happening on its own. And that's challenging to our usual sense of self usual sense of self, well, first of all, wants to be in control and thinks it is in control. And as I'm happy to say to you, good luck. <laughs> Try to be in control. Have you ever noticed how little we can control, really, about reality? And even for a while, if reality goes along in a certain way, think things change. Look at this storm that just happened on the East Coast. I read somewhere that was the worst storm that's ever happened on the East Coast. Like, that's brand new on some level. And, you know, everybody, people have their ideas about why what. I'm not getting into that. I'm just getting into a reality has its own dharma. Reality does what reality does. And we don't control reality. And my accident was very... Supportive of that understanding, right? I mean, I've ridden the bike for a long, long time and done a lot of big rides and done that ride before and never had, and I, you know, not fallen and broken things and stuff, but never had an accident like that. And, you know, and I've said this before and I'll say it again, and I can assure each one of you, each one of us is going to die. And what is that experience? right? I can assure you, it's not our idea of what it is. Whatever our idea is, that's not what it is. And we'll all be there to start to see, if we're awake, what actually happens. What is that? What is it that this body, you know, lasts for... A day, a week, a month, a year, five years, ten years, twenty, thirty, forty, fifty, six, seventy, eighty, ninety, a hundred, hundred and ten. And then it doesn't last. That's just and that's normal. That's, none of that's the oh, it's so horrible. It's just normal. That's how it works. Does that mean that's the end of the consciousness? Maybe. Let's see. What happens. Let's see, what, what, let's see if we can awake, awaken enough to pay attention to reality and see if we can let reality wake us up, which is one of the possibilities or potentials of human life. So the depersonalization of experience reveals the aliveness of reality in a whole other way doesn't make reality dull or dead or nothing or it's like you know my, my big word these days is wow <laughs> really life is wow those are my two words really that's it I, I trust, I'm not going to give you another W but wow and wild because it is like who knows what the hell it's really going on and, and then to see how wild it all is you know a life like your life you know and the the consciousness that's alive right now sitting in your seat like pay attention here go to the five aggregates be mindful of consciousness right now like what the hell is that not as an idea but as a living reality that's right here I don't, don't, you don't have to think something about it. Pay attention to it. It's wild in my view, in my experience. And so that one of the things that uh, paying attention to the fundamentals of reality can do is what I'm calling depersonalization. And I don't like that word because I, I like being really personal with life also. They're both good. But, but it's learning how to let go or not be so identified or holding on and to allow things to flourish in their naturalness, in their Dharma nature, in their Buddha nature. in Let you flourish in your Buddha nature. As, that's, as far as I can understand, that's what the Buddha is pointing at. He didn't say, oh me, it's just me, I'm the Buddha and that's it. Not at all. He said, no, this is what I discovered is the is potential that for any human being to wake up and, and depending on who you read or what you, you know, it's seen already that it, it's here. It's already here. The Buddha ness is already here. It's to be realized. Or it's to be, uh, not great language, but I'll use it, made real. But I don't mean made real in a constructive way. It's to be made re- real by learning how to use our intelligence, our creativity, our consciousness, our hearing, our presence, our awakeness. In a way, so that we can start to pay attention to this experience and wake up. And really, I say this often the whole Dharma, the whole Buddha Dharma, all these books, you go into, when I was a kid in Buddhism, there were five good books, you know, or seven books, or ten books and we were thrilled, I was thrilled too. Now you go into these things, and there are libraries of Buddhist books, right? You know, and some of them are good, you know, about four or five of them are really good. You know, I'm a little snotty about that, but... But all those books, you go and you see those books in the bookshelf, at Green Apple, wherever wherever you go, they're all pointing at what's sitting in your seat. That's where the Dharma is. It's right here. It's not somewhere else. It's right here. It's what is liking my talk, hating my talk, bored with my talk, excited about it. Talk. Whatever is happening, the Dharma is right here. How does that happen? How, I- how is that? <coughs> how is it? <laughs> I don't even know what to say. How is it to pay attention to this reality that's sitting in your seat? Well, I've got all these nice quotes I forgot to use. Here, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll read you. The I read. Yeah, I'll read you this one. Um, this is from the Holy Teaching of Vimalakirti. How many people know the Holy Teaching of Vimalakirti? Okay, everybody has to read this book by next week. <laughs> I'm kidding. But it's a great story. Because it's a story about a lay person uh, who gets awakened, a female in Kirti, And it's, it's just kind of wild. It's very challenging to a lot of the uh, monastics. And, uh, and uh, yeah. So, and I can't remember who's saying this, I imagine it's, it's female in Kirti. How do you spell that? That's a different question. B-I-M-A-L-A-K-I-R-T-I. Malakirti. It said, Sir, ma'am, flowers like the blue lotus, the red lotus, the white lotus, the water lily, and the moon do not grow on the dry ground in the wilderness. So, practitioners, (coughs) flowers like the blue lotus, red lotus, white lotus, water lily, and the moon lily do not grow on the dry ground in the wilderness, but do grow in the swamps and mud banks. Right? This is teaching for everybody here. Right? The flowers don't grow on the dry ground in the wilderness, but do grow in the swamps and mud banks. Just so, the Buddha qualities do not grow in living beings certainly destined for the uncreated, or for freedom, that would be another way to say it, but do grow in those living beings who are like swamps and mud banks of passions. Okay? Everybody, you want to hear that again? Yes. Okay? So the Buddha qualities do not grow in living beings certainly destined for freedom. But do grow in those living beings who are like swamps and mud banks of passions. A beautiful understanding. This is where the Buddha qualities grow. It's in the real lifeness, in the human lifeness that's sitting in your seat. You don't have to be a perfect person or, you know, make sure you comb your hair in the right way or wear the right clothes or you know sometimes those things are nice you know if you're trying to meet somebody or something (laughs) but really it's pointing at something that's here and that has passions and life to it and to start to pay attention to this aliveness in a very intimate way to pay attention to human aliveness in a very intimate way like in a more intimate way than you've ever paid attention to almost anything and then see what happens as you develop that capacity of consciousness to pay attention or to be intimate with living experience moment by moment by moment so I'm going to stop now and next week I'll continue but we'll continue, we'll go through some of the lists and we'll definitely go through the five hindrances and really um, uh, give a little more information. Uh-huh. So let's take a minute before we end. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.